Melting Pot. Hosted by Dominic Monkhouse. Welcome to The Melting Pot, episode two. I'm Dominic Monkhouse, and today I'm sitting down with David Tudhope, CEO of the Macquarie Telecom Group in Australia. He co-founded the business back in 1992 and now serves as CEO of a publicly listed business in Australia, turning over over $200 million. Since its inception, the business has been obsessed with delivering great customer service, and he's going to tell me how he got the business to where it is today. It's one of the best in Australia. In fact, not just in Australia, but with their high levels of net promoter score, they are one of the best services businesses in the world. He's going to tell me how they got there, how they keep there, and also how he's reworking his business model to find a way to attract younger workers. Hi, Dom. I'm David Tudor, CEO of Macquarie Telecom Group. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. There's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. One is the customer service journey that you've been on. Mm-hmm. And the other is the what other people might see as the sort of challenge of hiring graduates or millennials, which mm-hmm. I know you've got an interesting take on. Maybe we start with customer service. Tell me the story. Like, where are you? Where, where have you been? How long did it take? Look, look our journey started uh, when the business was founded uh, 25 years ago. And we focused from the beginning on customer service. The challenge we had was that our original business was a telecom business, and while we're the, the best in our industry, we're the best of a bad bunch. And about 10 years ago, there was a famous article in the Harvard Business Review, which was around the research that later formed the Net Promoter Score. And I saw it and I thought, that's so powerful. The idea of one number to measure what we've been doing for many years, a number you can compare to others, and a number you can... You, it's that clarity that you can work towards a goal. And I, and I remember at the time I sent it back to my marketing department and said, this, this is exactly what we need to do. This could replace that 50 question survey that we send twice a year. And uh, the note came back and it said, uh, David, because we're aware of this and we're gonna add it to our 50 question survey with the 51st question. And I wrote a note back and I said, but it's supposed to be the, the ultimate question. The, the one question has the highest correlation with whether a customer stays, buys, and refer their friends, shouldn't we replace the whole survey? I said, no, we're tracking all these things, it's more complicated than that. And I guess in the spirit of empowerment, I let, I let it go and moved on to lots of other things. In hindsight, it's one of the greatest mistakes I've made in my career because about two years later, I was invited to a breakfast from one of the authors of what had then become a textbook, um, The Ultimate Question, I was visiting Australia for a short time, and once again, he brought it to life, he told some case studies, ran a few videos, and I was so inspired. I came back, I said, guys, this is the ultimate question. This has the highest correlation with the things that we most care about. This is the one thing we should measure. We should get rid of all the other measures. And the same sort of reaction. And I said, guys, this is it. And we made that change, um, as you know, CEOs can do, and it has transformed our business over the subsequent eight years. And I believe the reason why it's transformed our business is that it's taken something we've always been the heart of who we are, having a great customer experience, but it's given us a number to measure it by. And I think the problem before MPS came along, there were so many questions and so many ways of interpreting it that you had almost too many data points and people could pick and choose the one that fitted their own preferences and their own views. But when you have one question 
and one set of uh, one number that is the, is the answer end of it, you can really focus and energise people around that. And the last eight years has transformed our business, and we've seen the customer experience improve dramatically. Uh, we measure over half of our completed transactions. Uh, we measure our entire customer base a couple of times a year, and we have a, an early early warning of drop-offs in customer service that we can address rather than waiting for it to come back through customer buying decisions. And we're most importantly able to, able to, because we've got such a high sample rate, enable our staff to make great choices around how they can improve the customer experience, how a supervisor can improve the customer experience rather than it being about what management can do because they have the data, it's real time, we share it immediately with the staff member. A few seconds after the survey is completed, the, the, the NPS result goes to them, and it's in the, inside the team they can see it as well. So it's been very powerful. We measure um, nowadays eight different key touch points that determine the customer experience, and I just wish I adopted it 10 years ago when I first saw it, and it's, uh, it's reimagined uh, I believe our business and an industry that is, is in, a, in our market notorious for very poor customer service. We've made ours business today, and this is eight years in the making, not just to have the best customer experience in our industry, which we kind of always had, but it was best of a bad bunch, but now the best customer experience of any public listed company in Australia in any industry, bar none. What is your current Net Promoter School? So when we started the journey, it was, it was plus 14, uh, which was the, uh, the competitors were sort of negative at the time. By no means a great school, and this is eight years ago. We grew it to about four years ago, around the plus 30 mark, and then we've since grown it further um, towards our goal, which we set ourselves originally, which was an ambitious goal at the time, of plus 50. And then we hit the plus 50 goal much faster than we expected, uh, once we set that, and then we've, we're now today at plus 69 for the whole company, and uh, two of our business units are at plus 83. World class, alongside Apple and First Direct, one of the UK's telephone banks. What are the type of things that the team does? Because quite often people look at the score, yes. they do their survey, they publish their survey, mm. but they, they don't do stuff to change the score. What, what are some of the, are there some things that have, along the way you think, we did that and it didn't work, or we did that and it really made a difference to the score? In the last two years, I've started talking to people like yourself, Dom, and sharing our journey. And what I've learned when I've had the conversations is that the majority of people that adopt Net Promoter Score uh, do not adopt all of it. They adopt the bits they feel comfortable with and the bits they feel uncomfortable with like the transparency of the data, like the fast feedback loop within 24 hours, things like this, they don't adopt. And I think it is one of those systems where to get, the, to get real benefits from NPS, you have to be all in. You have to adopt the whole methodology and you have to be absolutely determined to execute to that. It's not, it can't be simply as we did initially for the first couple of years, another dial on the dashboard which you can pick and choose whether you like the number or not. And I think that's why you do see people thinking, well, I tried NPS for a couple of years and nothing changed. Well, adopting NPS will change nothing by itself. It's what you do around it. 
Now, I guess the other part of your question is the execution. And in our journey, initially, there were a number of things that were significant items around systems or processes that we needed to do centrally. And we got some, some good wins that got us from the plus 14 to the plus 30s. But when we hit the plus 30s, what we found was that central programs to improve customer experience were actually becoming increasingly uh, counterproductive, despite all the goodwill. And I believe the reason for that is as, you, as your customer experience starts becoming very strong, as it is at plus 30, because the scale is minus 100 to plus 100, so you're well above the norm, often the levers you deal with centrally in a, in a significant corporate what you improve with one hand, you kind of have, a, have an impact somewhere you hadn't fully appreciated that actually takes experience down somewhere else. And in fact, the dials become more, more finer. You need to tune them more carefully, and it's very hard to do that centrally. So what we've found is that the people who, have the, who really took us from the 30s to the 50s to the 60s have in fact been the frontline staff and their immediate managers who can change those dials, who can change the way we interact with customers, can change the, the empowerment uh, and the decision process around small things that are often quite impactful on the experience. And that's what's got us to the next level. But the only way you can do that, of course, is with having very high sample rates. On the sample rates, mm. I know that's a conversation that we've had before. Is there a, have you got some top tips about fixing your people's low sample rate? There's a few ways of doing it. Uh, certainly, transparency helps enormously because they quickly realise that if they don't have a high sample rate, they can, one or two scores for individual can sway the outcome. So they quickly work out that it's in your interest to get a good sample rate. There is also um, the key is to, I think not to rely on email surveys. It's important to sample um, immediately after the experience is, is over. Uh, not, e not even a few hours later, customers just move on. The, your interac the interaction they had with you was only a small part of their, their lives, and, and if it's not particularly bad or good, as a rest status, don't bother responding, thinking it's, it wasn't a noteworthy enough experience. They're important, but I'd say the single most important thing is if you do the phone call, the phone call back within 24 hours, in our case, from the supervisor to the customer to say, in our case we, we, set, we call back the ones who scored us poorly, so 0 to 6 out of 10 in the would you recommend question answer. If you call them back within 24 hours, it has a very, even though you're calling back on something that didn't go well, it has an incredibly reinforcing experience that you really do care about what they think. And if it's a real live person who's genuinely interested in why they gave the score without any sort of judgment or trying to convince them to change their mind, the customer thinks, wow, they really care. And I think what a lot of companies forget is when they, when they do those, those sort of anonymised um, surveys after the event, the person responds and they send back one of those trite sort of we value your feedback type responses. It just says to the, says to the customer, you don't value my feedback. And they hear no more. And they won't do the survey again because uh, they think it's, they feel it's pointless and their and their and their voice the, their voice hasn't been heard by the organisation. But when someone calls so quickly, who's genuinely interested, and op asks open questions to understand why, uh, that's a, it's got a really powerful reinforcing effect. So we could turn to the other thing that you guys do which 
I haven't seen anybody else do in the same way. It's that mm. sort of interplay of onshore versus offshore and graduates and millennials and fixed term contracts. Tell, tell me more about the hub. Well, I guess for us, it's part of our brand because so we saw ourselves as doing the opposite to our competitors where they zig, we zag in our industry, both in the telecom business as well as the uh, IT industry. Tens of thousands of jobs being sent offshore to the India and elsewhere for customer service. And we saw an opportunity to do the opposite of our competitors. We were inspired by what we saw, you know, a very small number of examples of what could be done uh, onshore, but you had to do exceptionally well because you are, after all, have a cost base, it's probably three times for an employee what it would be if the same role had been overseas. We spent a lot of time understanding what a young person in their uh, early 20s, mid 20s, maybe you know, late 20s in some cases, who's just finished their undergraduate degree, what kind of role they would value and what, and what their expectations were. It was fascinating. I mean, one of the things we found was that when, it, when I graduated from university, you always looked for a career. Not a, not, a, not a job for life, that was probably the previous generation, that was probably more the, the post-war generation, but you still saw it as you wanted a career and you wanted a good job that would lead to another good job in time. But what we've found in our research is that the current generation are not looking for that sort of play. They actually see interested in a role that, could, that, that they'll have excellent training and development, that they see the role being a time frame more like two years, uh, although you know, it varies, of course. Some people think of it as a, you know, a year and a bit, and others might see it as a three- or four-year role, but typically two years is about the time frame. And they want to do more things in their life. And often their, their, th their thinking is, I'll do this role for a period, then I'll travel, then I'll do something completely different to even the, in the outside the workforce, uh, maybe something to do with the community, or I might have a career. I'll just see how, I, see how, how it turns out. What we've done is with all our new, effectively, graduate trainees, although we don't call them that, we call them customer service professionals, uh, with their undergraduate degrees, we say to them, you have a two-year contract. We commit to a level of training for them over that two-year period, but they also commit to actually doing the training and passing the exams. We give them automatic pay rises when they pass the exams, and that idea of continual development and continual reward and recognition uh, and then an end date to this role has been very powerful both in terms of getting the right sort of people on board in the first place, uh, people who like to learn and people who like to grow, but also it's had the effect of saying to them, you know what, at the end of two years I will graduate professionally from this role and at the end of two years I can then go and do what I want to do next, travel, work and, and our experience is uh, about a third of our staff do leave after two years, they travel or something. Uh, we thought a third would probably uh, leave and go to competitive, which we're totally fine with after the two year period, but we've probably found that um, only a small portion do and in fact about half of them end up moving to a different role inside Macquarie after two years. Does the program attract the best graduates? I mean are you able to did it at the beginning? Does it now? Has it, have you built some reputation in, in Sydney around the program? We've got two programs. There's a slight difference between them. One's for more technical people and one's for people who've got uh, non-technical degrees. 
and the technical degree program probably does attract the ones who've got you know, stronger technical backgrounds because they're quite excited about working in a company that does have real career paths in technology. But what we're looking for more than grades at university is we're looking for people who have a genuine customer service gene inside them, who genuinely like serving other people, enjoy it, and it's a bit like in your own family and friend circle. It's not someone who, who knows how to fix problems with laptops or software, but it's also people that have a style and an approach where you actually enjoy interacting with them after they've helped you with your laptop or your software. It's actually a pleasure. To, it's a, you feel good afterwards. Whether the program was a complex one that you really needed them for or something embarrassingly simple that you probably could have solved yourself if you'd known how, it's the ones where you come away from that experience feeling like it, it, was, it was a good one. And that's the sort of person we're looking for you know, in their early or mid-twenties. Thank you very much, David. Can I ask you one more question? Mm. What's the one thing that you believe that most people don't? I, I think that one of the most important pieces is it's often talked about the idea of an employee value proposition. And you know, I've certainly spent a lot of time looking at it. I think you do have a unique opportunity when people start out to really craft that and to attract people who believe in that value proposition as opposed to try and sell it to people who've already come on board with some other sets. And I think it's a, people have become, I think, a bit sceptical sometimes of EVPs. Um, they're just things created by the HR department. Uh, they sit on websites. I actually have seen that they're very effective. Like with our graduate recruitment I've talked to, you just attract the people who actually want to be there. And yes, it does mean you miss out on some people that otherwise you would have hired, but what you get is a completely aligned organisation. And I've seen that at times where you know, there's been some bumps along the road, you've created such a strong culture and such a strong commonality of purpose and expectations that that team of people just carry through that bump uh, without, uh, without any impact on uh, service or, or staff. David, thank you very much indeed. Cheers. Thank you. The Melting Pot was hosted by Dominic Monkhouse and you can find out more about Dom on LinkedIn, just search for Dominic Monkhouse or his companies, Foundry Media or Foundry 51. <laughs>